Today's podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Chapter American Academy of Pediatrics. The Ohio AAP promotes the health, safety, and well-being of children and adolescents so they may reach their full potential. We accomplish this by addressing the needs of children, their families, and their communities, and by supporting chapter members through advocacy, education, research, service, and improving the systems through which they deliver pediatric care. COVID-19 has reminded us, us all of the importance of infection control in clinical as well as community settings. Although many pediatricians are familiar with infection control in their practice already, COVID-19 has increased the stakes. Through support of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, the Pediatric Environmental Special Units, and the Ohio Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, we're presenting this Project First Line podcast. This is part of the Ohio AP's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, where we will get answers to your questions that you have submitted to the AP regarding COVID-19 prevention and infection control. Experts in pediatric environmental exposures, infection control, and indoor air quality will provide evidence-based practical advice to help us all get through the pandemic safely. Now on the podcast, I have the pleasure of introducing two infectious disease preventionists, uh, Emily Gross and Gladys Martinez of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Thank you for taking the time today to participate in this podcast. Would you please tell us a little about your role at Cincinnati Children's and in terms of the hospital's response to COVID-19? Thanks, Dr. Newman, for that introduction and thanks for having us on today. So Gladys and I, like you said, we are infection preventionists here at Cincinnati Children's. Just a little bit about our role in the hospital. Um, the goal of our job is to create safe practices that reduce the risk of healthcare acquired infections and to serve as a resource to staff who are performing patient care. Our team is really involved in many things throughout the hospital and its operations, but just a few examples uh, would be creating and updating transmission-based precautions, reviewing policies and procedures, surveillance of patients for HAIs, working with health departments on reportable conditions, and things like consulting on construction projects and environment of care standards. Um, infection control is relevant in so many different areas now. Um, there's really a seat for us at every table. Uh, but in terms of COVID response, we were the stewards for testing for a while while we had a limited number of allotted COVID tests. We were put in charge of contact tracing, both employees and patients positive for COVID. And we worked closely with employee health regarding PPE for fit testing, as well as surge capacity and contingency planning. And in the early stages of the pandemic, um, we, because we are subject matter experts in infection control, the hospital really looked to our department for guidance on emergency preparedness and pandemic planning, which all started back in January, 2020, before COVID had even made its way to the US. And even though we're, we're considered subject matter experts, we really are still learning new things about this virus every day alongside everyone else. So hopefully we can be a resource today and answer your questions. Thanks so much, Emily. That's that's really really neat. Uh, good to know because I, I think um, I think people kind of forget about uh, all the the experts behind the scenes that have been really trying to keep our whole society going. And certainly, I appreciate here at the hospital that we you know managed to keep things going too. So I, I wanted to get into some of the questions that have come in. So um, so the the first. Um, 
first set of questions really were about like reducing transmission in clinical settings. And you know, I, I wonder if you might comment on like what type of uh, personal protective equipment or PPE is, is recommended for various types of pediatric office visits. And would that be like different, like if a kid is just coming in for a vaccine visit or like for a sick visit or, or, or what? So generally you wanna protect your eyes, nose and mouth because COVID is transmitted primarily through droplets, which is why we instituted universal masking and eye protection for all patients at all visits. And then when seeing symptomatic children, you may want to consider protecting your clothes and hands because they can also get contaminated. Um, and then just a quick note on N95s, I know that has come up a lot. In the ambulatory setting, it's actually not recommended to use N95s respirators. Um, those types of face masks are really only recommended if you're performing a high-risk aerosol generating procedure or an AGP in an airborne infection isolation room. And many groups and organizations recommend looking for alternatives to these high-risk procedures and ambulatory type settings. It's interesting because I think a lot of people think that like the more you have the better, but maybe it's like finding the right stuff for the right job. Yeah, and using it correctly. Yeah. So how how often should PPE be changed? Um, you know, I, I guess it depends on what you're doing, but like, you know, um, could you comment on that? Sure. So ideally, PPE is to be used once and then discarded. But however, COVID has taught us that during times of limited supply, there are ways to safely extend the use of PPE. And CDC has made efforts to try and address contingency planning for PPE shortages, how to optimize PPE supplies. Um, so for example, in our facility, the same surgical mask can be used for a full shift unless it, be, it becomes soiled or you provide care for a patient who's in isolation, in which case you have to change your mask after that visit. That's good to know because I think uh, initially people weren't sure at all. Um, yeah. Do you have any recommendations about cleaning a room after seeing a patient with confirmed COVID or, um, or someone who's a person under investigation? Um, you know, what, do you do just the normal cleaning procedures or do you need to do something special? Yeah, so CDC has a list of um, EPA approved cleaning agents for COVID in healthcare settings. So we recommend verifying that what your facility is using as a disinfectant um, is on that list. But you're really your standard cleaning practices, which include cleaning and disinfecting high touch surfaces between visits would be sufficient to effectively clean a room after seeing a confirmed COVID patient or a person under investigation for COVID. That's good to know because we, uh... Earlier, we had uh, Dr. Buchanan talking, and she kind of echoed the same thing. We were talking more about like childcare settings and 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 schools, but um, I think the the you know the point to get across is that you don't you don't have to you know bring out the nuclear option every every time. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know one one thing that that actually one question that came in uh, was about nebulizer treatments and you know whether they were considered uh, aerosol generating or maybe like what other kinds of common like ambulatory procedures might be potentially aerosol generating. So unfortunately, I don't think there's an easy yes or no answer to this mm -hmm. question. Um, 
the CDC has not given officially like a list of what procedures are considered aerosol generating. Um, they really leave the classification up to each facility or practice. However, to address your question about nebulizers, nebulizers aerosolize a medication in saline, not necessarily a patient's secretions. And many have classified nebulizer treatments as low risk. Theoretically, it could induce like a deep cough by the patient, but an increased risk to healthcare workers in this scenario hasn't really been demonstrated. Okay, that's, that's good to know. The, um, should, do you recommend, uh, maybe just in general, I mean, do you recommend any um, infection control for pediatric offices in terms of like handling sick and well visits? Um, I know like at one point, you know, it was kind of popular at one point to have like the sick waiting area and the well waiting area. Um, but, you know, with COVID, maybe that's a little bit sometimes harder to draw the line. Yeah, so this is Gladys. Um, so overall, I think what we need to consider is that like our infection control recommendations are kind of meant to promote the overall patient safety and should really not just deter you from seeing your patients who need an in-person visit. So mm -hmm. symptomatic patients who require that in-person visit should call before presenting to that practice so that staff may be ready to receive them using the pro appropriate PPE and infection control practices. If, for example, your process is not able to involve a pre-visit call because you don't have you know, enough people to do that ahead of time, mm -hmm. perhaps allowing for ample opportunities for patients and guardians to be able to communicate if they are ill, whether that is through signage or registration screening questions, and just assuring that all your patients are able to be masked and try to reduce their wait time in the waiting area mm -hmm. by triaging them to a room that's as quickly and safely as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, the more people are in kind of a congregate congregate setting, the more chance that, you know, something could spread. So. Yeah. And that's hard sometimes too, because I know that sometimes like you, even here, we try as much as we can to, you know, schedule so that they're kind of spread out, but you're going to come across that situation. So it's best just to make sure everyone's masked and make sure that, you know, you're triaging, them, triaging those who are sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I remember years ago when I was in private practice, like one of my partners, unfortunately would would run like chronically behind and you know often would have a bunch of patients in the waiting room and you know the rest of us were just trying to get our patients in rooms as quickly as possible so that they're not all sitting there you know spreading snots and you know because that's what little kids are tend to do right so um so, you know, now that the vaccine is more uh, widely available, particularly like, you know, as we're getting to younger kids, but, you know, it's available to basically, you know, all adults. Um, what, you know, what do you see on the, you know, what's recommended now? And I know this is changing all the time. Um, inf infection control practices that need to stay in place after COVID vaccination and, um you know, I don't know that that may be like related to an individual or like also like, you know, overall. So and yeah. I know some of this might be looking into the crystal ball. So don't you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, kind of like what you said, you know, although we hope to be able to account for vaccination in healthcare right now, we kind of need to continue those COVID-19 infection control practices that everyone has kind of put in place over the past year at their own location. And kind of, again, for the reason for our message of not yet includes that overall there have 
there has been low vaccination rates in adults and um, adolescents and lack of vaccination for anyone younger than those um, 12 years of age. Um, and we continue to see community circulation of COVID-19 in many areas. And there's also possibility of COVID-19 variant being introduced. So really there's a lot that remains unknown mm -hmm. um, in, including like vaccine effectiveness for those that are immunocompromised. So I, we would recommend that it would be best to just maintain your precautions to protect not only ourselves, but to protect the patients that we treat. Yeah, yeah, particularly in a healthcare setting because yeah, it's different um, than the community. Correct, correct, right? Yeah, and I think you know, for some people that's a little hard hard to understand because you know, in the healthcare setting, you're often concentrating a lot of sick people, yeah. um, and um, some of those people have other illnesses. I mean, other than COVID, obviously. So mm -hmm. the um, so you know. How, how, because some people have wondered, like, what, what, what constitutes an exposure and how, you know, does expo, you know, being exposed impact recommendations for quarantine or, or testing? And I guess part of that is like, what, what do you define as yeah. an exposure? Yeah. So as most things as with most things with COVID, this is not a straightforward answer. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, that's why we had all these questions. That's why we had to create this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it would make our lives easier if it was two buckets um, that perfectly fit into the yes, definitely exposed or no, definitely not exposed. Right. But kind of the truth is that most exposures fall in that gray area. Mm -hmm. And yes, you can refer to the CDC's operational definition of a prolonged exposure, but it's often the case that you have been exposed and you are unaware. So perhaps testing based on symptoms rather than the exposure may be more beneficial and more informative. Mm -hmm. um, when, when thinking about healthcare worker exposures, it might be important to weigh the risks and benefits for quarantining your staff based on staffing shortages, operation, and adherence to precautions. In our personal experiences, um, transmission has been low when PPE and precautions are in place and followed appropriately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess like that's one of the take-home points is that, you know, we have some things in place already that work to prevent yeah. spread regardless of who ha has it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And um I mean, I can remember a time, you know, when, um, you know, precautions around HIV were just being, like, talked about, you know, in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, and the idea of just, like, kind of universally doing things because, you know, yeah. you couldn't tell who had it. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we have to maybe think, I don't know, what do you, it seems like we have to think kind of more, like, um, a little bit more kind of universally than just like, oh, all right, you're okay, you're not. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that kind of goes back to, again, um, kind of when we were talking about the waiting room and triaging, mm -hmm. you know, that it's like, you can't just go based off of the fact that someone has a positive test. You just right. kind of look to see who's feeling well or not and just maintain your kind of standard precautions, which is right now our universal precautions. Right. Now, I, I, I don't know, has, has Children's Hospital, I mean, we, we have home health that goes out. I mean, are there any, has, has your group come up with any special recommendations or precautions for the home healthcare workers, like nurses or therapists that might be going to a home 
And once again, like all the you know status of things may be unknown. Yeah, so I think what generally what our recommendation has been is to kind of treat the patient's home as though it was a clinic room and to treat mm -hmm. the patients as, as an extension of the patient. So everything kind of still applies, you know, appropriate mm -hmm. PPE in the set setting of an asymptomatic, symptomatic child and diligent hand hygiene. But again, you're entering someone else's home. So first and foremost, you have to protect yourself as you would in a clinical space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. The, uh, and then the, there was actually a question, uh, there were a few questions that came in from speech therapists and I was trying to kind of uh, condense them down. And, you know, so ultimately, you know, there was questions about um, face protection being used by speech therapists and speech therapists are trying to show their mouth to the kids so the kids can learn to speak. So do we have any special masks and do you know how those compare with um, like kind of more standard ones? Yeah. So I think that like the type of mask that speech therapists kind of use will differ depending on the type of therapy for mm -hmm. the patients and their preference. But yeah, for example, um, some of our speech therapists in our facilities have been using masks with that area of clear plastic material over their mouth so that the patient can't see their faces. Mm -hmm. Um I think um, we kind of really just recommend that the mask is able to completely cover the nose and mouth um, and that it fits snugly against your face so that there's mm -hmm. no gaps. Um, I know that for ourselves, uh, most of our masks, they um, lead, have to meet some sort of level for like all healthcare or something mm -hmm. type of um, mask, but that's kind of it. I think the biggest takeaway is just make sure it fits snugly against your face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think um, a lot of the discussion about masks, people, you know, worried about what they're made out of and yeah. all these other things. But if it's not on right, like it's yeah. not really going to work effectively. Mm -hmm. And um, later in the podcast, we're also going to speak with uh, Dr. Grinchman, who um, has been studying like masks and and um, uh, droplets and stuff like that for years. And so he's been uh, he has some insights about that that also might be be helpful. Uh, do you have? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Gladys and Emily, uh, for taking the time to do this. Do you have like any other like comments that you want to make or feel, things that you feel like you want to get across before we finish out the podcast with you? I think just hang in there. It's not over yet. Mm -hmm. Definitely positives but we're still in it. So just hang in there. Yeah, just stay strong. I think, you know, maintain what you're doing right now. It's really, it's for the benefit for not only yourself, but also the patients that you may see in your office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, um, so much emphasis has been put on um, like various heroic measures and things like that. But in truth, like, how you, we get through this is more through just like these day-to-day -day things and just mm -hmm. uh, maintaining the, the discipline and the rhythm of it. And um, the, you know, I talked to uh, you know, friends in the community who they might be somewhere and they have to ma wear a mask all day. And they're just like, oh my gosh. And, and they, <laughs> they turn to me and they're just like, yeah, gosh, you must be used to this by now. So yeah, yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, I, I think, um, 
all of us have really had to make some changes and adapt over the last you know year and a half. So, the uh, and I certainly appreciate the work that you've done. I think uh, fo folks in your position really have been somewhat the the unsung heroes of a lot of this because it's really been this day to day, behind the scenes kind of work that's uh, kept so many people um, healthy and safe. So, um, well, thank you both for. Uh, taking the time to uh, sit for the interview and um, hopefully we can talk to you sometime again soon. Take yeah. care. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Welcome.